Yes. Wow, that's serious. <laughs> I should have brought my hairstyle. <laughs> my makeup, makeup, <laughs> makeup. Makeup. <laughs> oh, well. It's all good. All right. Are you ready for your close-up? <laughs> I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, which happens to be one of my favorites. All right, Robert. Thanks. I mean, Hector, thanks. That's okay. For, we'll we'll we look the same in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Start off on the right foot here. Uh, no, thanks for coming back. Uh, sure. Yeah. We, uh, but so, and I, I, I wanted to wait a couple of weeks so it'd kind of be fresh again. Okay. But uh, at any rate. So um, one of the things we want to, usually we start off with the kind of music that you first got turned on by the first, right. the first music that, that you really liked that, you know, spoke to you. Yeah. It made me become a musician. Right. Uh, well, I, I, like I said, my dad, um, was, is a pianist. And when I was a little kid and we were living at home, he had a record collection that was pretty, uh, varied and, um, really cool. He liked bossa nova. He liked classical, um, he liked Motown, he liked uh, the British Invasion, and some Mexican music, and I mean, we're talking the mid-60s here, so. But the record that really um, grabbed my attention was the Supreme's Greatest Hits. Wow. Uh, yeah, the double LP, and uh, I don't know, there was something about that snare drum, man. It was just so, like, on time, and it sounded so fabulous in the recording, and I would just play that record over and over. And particularly, uh, I hear a symphony, which is a really beautiful song. Right. On top of that, all the songs on, on that record were just amazingly written by uh, Holland, Dozier Holland. Right, who, right. So, you know, it's like it was a really nice combination of everything in the package. The the musicians, the songwriting, the singing, just the energy, the, 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 the message, you know. And that's what really drew me in to, like, wanting to like music more and discovering it really right and from that point on and uh another record my dad had was uh, uh cy coleman i believe it's called the ages of rock or the rock of ages i can't quite recall but it was a cool record it had a very colorful cover and it had a painting of like schubert on one corner and beethoven on another corner of the lp cover and then down on the other corner there was like chopin and Bach and Mozart, and they're all sort of mixed up like in this smoky, dreamy, technicolor thing with these women, you know, Baroque breasts <laughs> hanging out everywhere. Right. But anyways, that's not what attracted me, okay? Just make clear that. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Cy, Cy Coleman's kind of a jazz guy. What, is there a rock reference to it, or was he doing rock yeah, on that? Yeah, well, he was taking classical pieces that were very uh, well-known, and he was applying uh, like a like a rhythm section of of electric um, rock band, you know, like a, a, a full drum kit, electric bass, electric guitar, oh, wow, yeah, uh, electric keyboard, and still adding strings and what have you. But he was like also applying the rock and roll energy into those pieces, and it was just like this incredible combination, you know, like, uh, and it was like whoa, and that that was the other record that caught me. Uh, the first cut, I think, it's called. Uh, Shocking Pink or something like that. It was a Mozart piece, you know, and, and I can't tell you the actual, you know, technical, you know, symphony number what or whatever. Right. But, but it was really awesome, and it, and it was just, like, so well executed and so fast. So those two records were my, my, my introduction, you know. That's what really got me into being um, a music fan. And then later on, the Beatles came around, you know, right. and I was 11 when they broke up, and... They were all over the radio stations. Anywhere that you went, they were just playing the Beatles everywhere because they'd broken up and everybody didn't want them to be break up. <laughs> right. So they were the uh, second wave of music that caught me. And in that second wave, I said, okay, I want to play guitar now. I want to be a musician. I want to do something musically, you know. So Beatles I, especially. What about any other uh, English invasion bands? Uh, they, you know, I didn't know anything about any of the other ones until uh -huh. way later. Uh -huh. like, uh -huh. Yeah, because I was 11, uh, and it was like around 71 or 70 that the Beatles broke up. And then uh, it wasn't until about like 75 or 76 that I started discovering, um, you know, uh, the Stones and uh, Herman's Hermits or... Um, 
hearing the pacemakers uh-huh. or the kinks because all these records were available at the local thrift stores in Chula Vista. And so you, it was like, oh, yeah, I heard of the kinks. You know, I'm going to check this out. At the time, like, KCBQ would play the kinks Lola, but it had nothing to do with the with their 60s sound. It was a whole other you know, later, more contemporary sound. You really got time. me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But then you hear this other stuff, you're going, wow, man, this, these guys were really great. So, but yeah, they came in later after the Beatles with that. My, uh, my first, uh, my first four records that I ever bought were Rolling Stones, the fifth Kinks. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first record I, I bought, I was living in Tijuana with my grandma and my granddad and it was a uh, Let It Be uh, Mexican uh, two, a four song EP. <laughs> Uh, you know, at a local record store on off Revolution Street somewhere. And then um, I, I bought another couple of Beatle records. I think it was Magical Mystery Tour and Introducing the Beatles. Those were the, the first three official records I ever owned. Uh-huh, sure, but sure. But then, then once I discovered that, you know, thrift stores existed and you could buy tons of records and they were always full of records. A buck. Uh, you could get these amazing records for 25 cents. Right. When you're a kid who's broke, you know, <laughs> a dollar can go a long way when you can get four amazing records for a dollar. You know? Well, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I Probably three-quarters of my record collection comes out of thrift stores. Yeah. And the main reason was you could find stuff there that you could not find at Tower Records. Exactly. Nowhere else. Yeah, yeah you nowhere know? else. Yeah. And you don't know what it was, but it had an interesting cover. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, oh, I'll try I'll see what this is about for twenty five cents. Yeah, you yeah you're not. Gonna you take it home much. and uh, it wasn't so good. Or wow, yeah, yeah or wow, what was yeah. this from Jupiter? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I got really got into the ventures around that time. I got into like the James Bond soundtracks uh, that were available at the time. All the Sean Connery stuff, of course, because after Sean Connery, forget it. It's all James Bond. <laughs> well, line. that's a particular kind of <laughs> that's a particular kind of guitar too. Yeah, yeah, that uh, spy guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And great songs too. I, I love uh, you know from Russia with Love with sure. Matt Monroe singing it. And anytime I go to karaoke, I always pick all the James Bond soundtracks, and people kind of wonder what's wrong with me because I'm singing <laughs> Goldfinger and <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just I don't know. I get a kick out of it. It's fun. The good songs, man. You know. So you you started picking up. Guitar? Or? So I started picking up guitar when I was about 11 uh, after hearing all the Beatles songs and stuff. And um, I, um, I had an aunt who had left her guitar at my grandmother's house and I was with my grandma at the time. So I started picking on it, you know, and I didn't know, really understand the instrument, but somehow I made it make a little bit of noise and then I just stuck with it. I, I became obsessed with it and I just kept at it, kept at it and kind of trying to figure out, understand the mechanics of it. And it took me about a year or two and finally I... I uh, was in, living in Tijuana by then, and I bought this little $1 songbook. It was a Beatles songbook, and it showed you how to make the guitar chords, you know. Uh-huh. So I started— Where to put your finger. Yeah, in. yeah, yeah, to make an A chord or yeah. whatever. So I, I, I got into that, and once I did that first A chord, my, it was like a choir of angels, you know. It's like, <laughs> drum. I said, oh, my God, I'm there. Let's do this. Since I kept practicing my A chord, E chord, B chord, whatever. And then I got into, like, okay, I want to learn how to play certain songs, so I would— the record on the record player i remember one song that i practiced to a lot trying to figure out how to play was roll over beethoven oh right chuck berry but it was the beatles version sure and man i just sat there with that thing for hours okay okay here's the starting note then i might i ended up training my ear um to like know what notes were or what chords were being played on the recording and then i could follow it a lot easier you know right and then you learn how to sort of tune your guitar to the to the record, because you know you, you catch that E chord, it goes oh that's E, okay, E, you know? right, <laughs> right, so right. We didn't have all this like technology that we have now. You know, you can you have a tuner in your phone if you want one. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Not then, man. Or one of those little boop boop whistly things that always were out of tune. Anyways, <laughs> those things were always out of tune. Oh yeah. But that's how I got into guitar, you know. And I just started playing um, for my own enjoyment and keep myself busy. We didn't have. VCRs and video games and or DVDs or anything back then. We just had a radio, three television channels, you know, and, and your record player and your guitar, and then you just got obsessed with something, you know, which was the guitar for me. So when it, we uh, oh the disc thing is it too far down or? Thank you. Yeah, a little water would be nice. Sorry about that, Dave. 
You want it back or no? It's all good. Uh, are we live? Or yeah, yeah, we're live. It's, uh, it's okay. I mean, it's punk rock, man. <laughs> we're going to get there. <laughs> so, yeah, whenever, whatever. All right. So at some point, you're going to play with somebody else. Well, yeah, I never had been in a band, you know, and and yeah, of course that's everybody's dream. Like when you play an instrument, be oh, it'd be cool to play with with a group, you know, or whatever. And um, I met a kid in uh, when I was a kid too. What am I saying? But uh, in junior high school, doing summer school in Chula Vista Junior High, his name was Ruben Rubio, and we were uh, taking some of the same classes together, and we just hit it off. And he played guitar, and I was learning how to play guitar, so we'd meet up and play and. At the time, I was living over on um, Broadway and H Street in Chula Vista, and he lived all the way down on Naples and Broadway, which uh, was south, almost towards near Palomar. So it was a really good, you know, track. So I would get on the bus with my guitar and, and get down to his neighborhood, and then we would like sit in his bedroom and, you know, try to follow each other on the guitar. And I remember one of the songs we were playing was "Lion Eyes" by the Eagles. Which oh was wow! The songs that we were like. Learning because it was easy and it was popular on the radio at right. the time, and it was actually a nice song, you know. So that was one song that we just like bang away on all the on the guitar, bam, bam, just try to get it, you know. And then um, after Ruben, uh, there was another fellow named Clay Wolfram, and Ruben was friends with Clay, and, and he Ruben met Clay first, and he said, "Oh, I got this friend, and he's really good. He can play Stairway to Heaven." He called me on the phone. He goes, "Play him Stairway to Heaven on the phone, right?" And I was like. Listening to this guy play Stairway to Heaven on the phone, I'm going, why, why, why am I listening to this on the phone? <laughs> but anyways. <laughs> and, and then uh, I met Clay, and I got along with Clay really really good. And then, then Clay actually wanted to start playing with me, and he he ignored Ruben because I guess I was a better player at that time by then. But Clay was cool because he, like, introduced me to The Who and Frank Zappa uh, all and all right. these really great bands, and he had all these records and so we became really good friends for a while. And after Clay, I met Baba, the drummer in the Zeros at, oh, right. at Chula Vista High, uh, Junior High. And I was in a gym class, and he was in gym class too. Uh, we were in the same period. And uh, Baba was in the opposing soccer team for that quarter, uh, and I was in the other soccer team. And so we were playing against each other, and then some kid hit the ball just blindly, and it came flying around my face, knocked me on my back. The, the only person that came out to see if, to say anything to me was Baba. He ran out and goes, hey, man, are you okay? Everybody was just standing around me, but he's the one who actually made contact with me. I said, I don't know. I think I'll be okay. So he, him and I walked to the infirmary together, and then uh, I ended up getting a, a clot in my eye, that my left eye from the, from the impact of the ball, oh, and wow. so I had to go to the hospital for two weeks. Wow. I had a patch on my eye, take medication, all this stuff, because I would have probably lost my eye or lost my sight. And then when I was when I recuperated, I went back to school. And then Baba came around and was asking me how I was doing. And uh, we, you know, we started making friends. And around back in that in those days, it was uh, the Midnight Special was a uh, television show, a rock and roll TV that. show yeah. that used to be on Friday nights. Uh, and so I would stay up and watch it. And when, uh, then was when, the, was Wolfman Jack the host of that? I think so. I think he might have been. Yeah. Right. That yeah, seems I think like. He was. But uh, they always had somebody. I mean, I remember one time Bowie was introducing bands, and then another time Linda Rossat was introducing bands. All so right. I think they might have rotated that. But but this particular night, Kiss came on, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm talking 1976, right? They were at the peak of their career there. And um, I'm like, i never seen these guys before, and I was just didn't know what to make out of it, of, of the whole thing. The goofy like, makeup. Yeah, the platform shoes, the lipstick, the, yeah. the feathers. And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, and they were like doing their theatrics and everything. And so I just kind of, you know, stayed in the back of my mind. And then the next school day, the Monday, went back to school, and I meet up with Baba at recess. And then um, I says to Baba, hey, man, did you watch the Midnight Special? I, there was this band called Kiss on there, and I don't know. I said, I don't know if I like them or not. I mean, I think they were kind of like a I mean, I don't know. He goes, oh, I love them. They're really great. I'll let you borrow their records. And so the next day after that, he brought his, all his Kiss records. So then I became a Kiss fan. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, they had some good, uh, you know, good pop rock yeah, yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah, their first three records up to the Kiss Alive were really great. And then after that, when they, when they, when the first time I heard Hard Luck Woman, I was like, why do they want to be Rod Stewart? It sounds just like yeah, Rod Stewart. Right, right. And then Bath was such a nutty song because that came out, you know, on, on Destroyer. And that was just like, it's just such a departure from what they sounded like, which is like this New York rock and roll New York sound. Then suddenly Beth comes on with strings and all this, like, you know, really pompous and just bombastic. And I thought it was funny because it was kind of this love ballad. Yeah. Yet, you know, uh, don't worry about us. We're going to be, I'm going to be out with the boys. You'll be home by yourself. But it's some sort of love song. Is that Yeah. What it, is? it was like, hey, man, I got to go to work. All right. right? <laughs> Tough luck. But yeah, it was a weird song. And, but the irony was that it was Peter Chris who who wrote it, and he's the one who. That's the only number one Kiss has, has ever had was Beth. And Is I, that right? Yeah, and I think I think Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley have always had sort of a you know, it kind of has irked them. Well, <laughs> I, I played a lot of one. I played a lot of uh, Kiss in the strip club, but I probably played Beth more than any other song. Yeah, yeah, it's a popular song. I mean. Yeah. But uh, Bob Ezrin produced it, the guy who produced uh, Berlin for Lou Reed, which is an amazing album. Right. And, uh, you know, very... Lots Early of string, concept. Very, yeah, really lush, you know. Yeah. Really beautiful, actually. The guy has a really good ear for that stuff, good production values. But So, yeah, so Kiss was the thing that, that bonded Bob and I because then I started going to Bob's house. He was living in Nashville City out in Plaza and Harbison. I was living down on Broadway and H. Uh-huh. And I would get on my 10-speed twin and strap my electric guitar to my back and just pedal it all the way down there. Man. It's, a, it's a good little ride, you know? Right. And it just became the weekend thing to do until I just, they would say, you just spend the night and you just, you know, you can leave tomorrow. And so I, it became a thing. I'd just go there and hang out sat Friday afternoon, Saturday, leave on Sunday. And all we do is just be in the garage, just banging away on our instruments, trying to get better, you know. And he's right. on the drums, me on, on a guitar with a tiny little amplifier, you know, and we're playing like Strutter and we were doing, he, he introduced me to, to uh, a lot of great music too, like the New York Dolls and Gene Krupa and Bo Diddley. And uh, we used to practice to Pills, you know, the Bo Diddley uh, song, but it was the New York Dolls version. Oh, wow. So, we, yeah, we were, like, on that. Because it was a three-chord rock and roll song, super easy. Pills, huh? Yeah, we used to, do pill, we used to practice on pills and strutter. <laughs> and it was like, okay, let's do pills now. Okay, let's do strutter now. Let's do pills now. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It was it was hilarious. And then Bob's dad was a National City policeman, and he would come home from work, and he'd be, you know, walking to the garage, and he had his, his lazy boy in the garage, and he'd go there, sit down, pop open a beer, and he'd be like, can you guys play some Johnny Cash? That <laughs> 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 first time I ever heard of Johnny Cash, I'm like, who's that? Right? <laughs> it was so funny. Every time, like clockwork, he he, he just did it as a joke after a while. <laughs> it was great. Mr. Chanel was awesome. He was really supportive of the band, you know. He, he's the guy who used to drive the Zeros to Hollywood to go do the gigs. Oh, wow. Because we were all kids. We were all still in high school, you know. Harvey didn't have a car at the time, and... He'd drive us up in his old station wagon, his LTD, and then drop us off at the gig. And then Bob would tell him, hey, Dad, come and pick us up later, you know, because it wasn't cool to have your dad there, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then he'd go hang out at a bar. Who knows? He'd come back and pick us up, and then we'd go home, you know. It was it was routine for a while. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he uh, he really was uh, – they're really great, great family, man. They were like my family. I mean, they took me like a kid, like their kid, you know. It's really cool. Nice, nice. Well, so zeros. Yes, and so, so how that evolves is that uh, Mojavier already had, you know, been influenced by his brother Al Alejandro Escovedo, and I believe they used to live in Huntington Beach before they moved to Chula Vista, and Alejandro used to um, go to the whiskey all the time to the Sunset Strip to see bands, you know, and so he'd come back to Huntington Beach and tell Javier all about these cool bands, whatever. And then that's how Javier, you know, like got into like uh, MC5 and the Stooges and Iggy Pop. And because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in 1975, I don't think anybody would even know who those bands were down on the South California. Sure. But in, in Huntington Beach, LA, it's a whole different, you know, metropolis there. It's everything's more available. So, um, when Javier and his whole family moved down here, uh, he was already like 
influenced by these bands. So he was trying to make a band with those um, sounds, you know, uh, as well as like Bowie's uh, Ziggy Stardust and what have you. And so uh, Javier was trying to get a band together and he started, uh, he was in Chula Vista High School. He was dating, I believe, Rhoda Lopez. And then Rhoda um, had his her little brother, Robert Lopez. And Robert was a musician too. Robert was totally into like uh, Bowie and Kiss and a lot of the glam bands, Mark Bolin. And uh, he liked, uh, I believe, uh, Mata Hoople too, you know. Right. Really great bands, you know. And, and so um, Javier meets Robert and they start playing together and they got a little band going on called the Main Street Brats. But then the band sort of fell apart. And then Baba always wanted to be in a band and he was he was like jealous that Robert was already in a band with Javier and these other guys, but then the other two guys in Robert and Javier's band quit, so then Robert got Baba into the band. So there was Javier, Baba, and Robert. And they were trying out bass players, they couldn't find any, and Baba kept insisting on uh, on trying me out, you know, saying to Robert and Javier, you should try Hector out, you know, he plays bass, and they like, they finally did, and uh, I went to, to Javier's house uh, off of E Street on Ash and um, Street and, <laughs> and yeah we were practicing this tiny little room it was smaller than this this area here <laughs> and we had to prop the bed up to the mattress to the side right. of the wall you know <laughs> to make room for us and then uh, they said oh, yeah we'll call you we'll, we'll let you know you know and so I didn't hear anything about the audition after after audition I didn't hear anything and then uh, I finally called up Baba one day. I said, hey, man, you're in school. I said, I said I'm going to bug him. I, I can't be you know, I'm wondering what's going on with this. And he, right. So, so what's up with, with, the, with Javier and Robert? I mean, you know, what did they tell you? And he goes, well, you know. And then he was saying this jokingly, I'm sure. He said, well, they say it's going to be too many Mexicans in the band. <laughs> it's like, too many Mexicans? I said, well, they're Mexican, you know. It's like, it was just, but it was a funny thing. And um, I'm sure it was uh, humor, Baba's humor that, that he said that. But um, eventually they had a gig. And they were um, desperate to have a bass player for the gig. So Baba called me and goes, hey, we're going to do this gig in Rosarito in Baja, and uh, if you want to play with us, it'd be great. So, okay, let's go. So that's how I got in the band. So what what, what was your set list like in, at that first gig? We only had like five songs. I think I know we had Pipeline, the really fast version that nice. Johnny Thunders would play. And then uh, then we had, for sure, we had Wimp, uh, Don't Push Me Around. So Wimp? Okay, so okay, so those those songs are there. Already. Oh yeah, they're they're early, really. Yeah, yeah. early songs. Uh, I think um, maybe even "Beat Your Heart Out" was was part of that set list at that time, and one other one, maybe Shannon said that was a Robert song, if uh-huh. I recall. Yeah, and there was only five songs. We showed up and we were uh, we were just like too weird for everybody, you know, because we were wearing our <laughs> Straight leg pants and you know little beetle boots and tight little t-shirts and you know the mop top haircut and everything. But it was like not going for a Beatles look, but more for like the uh, Standells, the Outsiders, those garage bands, you know the Seeds, sure kind of thing going on. Uh, and uh, yeah, the they had a cover band that was playing too. For it was a quinceañera, you know, like a sure. sixteen thing. Sure. And the cover band was from Tijuana, and they had all these amps, and they they agreed that they would let us borrow them, but they were very reluctant about it, and they weren't very nice about it. But <laughs> So we played, and then we're like, okay, we're done. Let's get out of here because, I mean, we were like, you know, as popular as herpes at the gig, you know? We're like, people were just like, what is this? It's like, so everybody, we're like, let's get out of here. We're, we're done. We're, so we split. That was our first gig, you know? It was really weird. Wow. And then... um there was nowhere for us to play in San Diego at the time. We're talking late 76, early 77, you know, somewhere in there. And it was like nobody wanted to touch us, you know. And um, Yeah, at that point, I was having to go to L.A. or San Francisco yeah. to see any of the sh- punk rock shows that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. There's nothing happening in San yeah, Diego. Yeah, there was nothing happening. And, and, you know, we were stuck in the rehearsal studio. We just practiced religiously like two or three times a week, you know, for three hours or whatever. And really, really, really bust our ass to just really be tight and... and and you know that was our pastime. That was our, that's what we did to 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 not be bored. Yeah, know? have fun. Yeah, just play, play, play. And then um, Javier used to go to Hollywood uh, Records swap, swap meet on uh, Sunset Boulevard and Vine over at the Capitol Records building parking lot. Oh right. And so 
we had already recorded a demo in Bonita, uh, and we had like I think those five songs, maybe maybe a few more on there. So he took this cassette tape up there and he gave it to I think it was either Peter Case or Paul Collins. It's one of the nerves, I think. Oh no, kidding. Yeah, and 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 they were putting a show together in L.A. And so they they called up Harvey and said, "Yeah, we want to get you guys on the bill." So we're like, "Let's do it," you know. And that was our first ever gig, our first exposure in Los Angeles. The nerves and and uh, it was the weirdos were headlining. Oh, the Germs debut. Wow. They were the openers, uh, the Zippers and us. So it was Germs first, Zero second, Zippers third, Weirdos fourth. And then the Damned were in town on their first U.S. tour, and they had already made friends with Greg Shaw, who owned Bomp Records. Right. The Zippers were on Bomp Records, as well as the Weirdos were on Bomp Records. So Greg Shaw was there representing his record label. And so uh, the Damned had already made friends with the Weirdos, too, so they were there hanging out. And so that was the night that Greg Shaw came up to us on our very first gig and said, you guys want to put on a record? You know, <laughs> we're like, this is too much, man. It's like, I thought you had to like at least play a couple of years <laughs> and kiss a lot of people's butts, you know, but it didn't happen like that. It was just like instant. It was crazy. And that was great. You know, I mean, we're, so it was Wimp and Don't Push Me Around? Yeah, that was what, what was uh, the first single. Yeah. Yeah. We were totally like on cloud nine on that. We're like, whoa, what? Did this really happen? <laughs> you know? I bought that thing at Scratching the Surface Record. On oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. And uh, we were Turn really excited about that because, I mean, I was like, a record. Are you kidding me? This was Well, okay. So do you know, because um, I've, I've, it seems to me like you guys are the first punk rock band in San Diego. Uh-huh. I, the, I know the Dills. Mm-hmm, right. Are, are, we're we're doing it up in uh, more north North County, yeah, I guess. Carlsbad. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I didn't. But you guys probably recorded first, right? You think? I, I I'm I'm assuming so. You know, because uh, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, because before the zeros, Robert and and and, and Javier had the Main Street Brats. Yeah, and the Main Street Brats were just the seed that you know sprouted out as the zeros because. You know, already Javier was into Lou Reed and, sure, you know, all those sure. bands that, that he got into. And um, then, you know, when Bob and, Rock and I came in, then it became the Zeros, you know. But but so, I mean, if, if you want to include the Main Street Brats, that's the first one, then, okay, you know what I mean? But, but yeah, then we find out there was this other band in San Diego called the Dills, and we were in L.A. when we were found out about that. And we're like, wait a minute, you know, we got to find these guys because it's like they're punk band, but... See, we when we started, we didn't consider ourselves even punk at all. You know, we were just like playing the songs that we wrote and that we were having fun and that we liked. And and then one day at rehearsal, Robert comes in and goes, "Hey, man, there's this thing called punk rock in England that's <laughs> happening." And and I'm like, we're all like, "What's that?" And he goes, "Yeah, there were safety pins. Safety pins. <laughs> what kind of a fashion is that?" Anyways, and then shortly thereafter. Another thing, another another big influence for us was that we used to buy this magazine called Rock Scene, the New York Rock Scene, and it was basically just focused on the New York rock scene of the times. It was Bowie hanging out with Lou Reed, hanging out with Iggy Pop at Max's Kansas City, you know, and or like you know, up and coming Blondie, you know, here comes Debbie Harry, you know, like they haven't even been signed to anything yet, and they're they're already in the magazine, you know. So it yeah. was a, a it was an interesting magazine, and that was our bible really because. There was Circus Magazine or Rolling Stone, but and we bought Circus and everything. But but New York rock scene was just it was just so much edgier and so much sure. cooler and so much under more underground, you know. And we were always waiting for that damn magazine to come out at the at the Third Avenue bookstore and magazine shop. And we were always really excited to see it because it was like all this cool stuff going on in New York. And we were always thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be hanging on Max of Kansas City and. Here comes here comes the New York Dolls walking in through the door, you know. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of them things, you know. And and so that was always like a, a dream of ours to to end up there, which we did, and we played there, which was really bizarre. But but uh, yeah, so that's that's what we were doing at the time. And then we find out about the deals in L.A., and then somehow we ended up uh, connecting with Chip and Tony. Right. And I and we we had realized that they had been in a band called the Hitmakers before that, though. With Jeff Scott, right. I think. Right, right. And then, and then when when Chip and Tony left, I think that's when Ron Silva took took over. 
Okay. I think that's when he walked into the Hitmakers with the other two guys, and then Joel Kamak. And then um, it was interesting because, I mean, we played in Hollywood for a while. Uh, we got into the punk rock scene. They accepted us. We became part of it. We played in L.A. so much, people thought we were from East L.A. all the time. They thought we were from East L.A. We're like, no, we're from Chula Vista. Like, Where's that? You know. <laughs> right. So we always had to make that correction, you know. But um, we uh, we made friends with everybody uh, in the L.A. scene. We were playing with X when they weren't even signed yet, uh, playing with uh, the Weirdos, uh, the Dead Beats with Gaza X. That was one of my very favorite bands. Oh, they were great. Gaysa is a genius, musical genius, man. That guy's, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And the Mommy Men. Yeah, uh, Mommy Men, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was was one of the first punk rock shows I saw in San Diego was at the uh, uh, Comic-Con. It was probably 77. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, and I met, um, I had just met Gary Heffern. Okay. And so we're riding up the elevator, to go see this show with the Deadbeats. Mm-hmm. It was at the Comic-Con when it was in the basement of the El Cortez. Oh, dang. And so, we, and so one of the auditorium rooms had had this show, this and the Deadbeats were playing. Oh, let's go. So we were riding up in the elevator. Who's who's riding up there with us but Timothy Leary? Oh, wow. I got a story for you about Timothy Leary. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we we go up there, uh, and, you know, they kill the hippies, and uh, mm-hmm. so they start brainless. And you know that saxophone player just goes nuts oh, in, yeah, yeah. In, in brainless, and so he's he's flopping around all over the place, and he's on his back, and he's jumping <laughs> up, and he's bumping into the bass player, and he's bumping into the amps, and he bumps into the bass amp, oh, and no. it it rocks back, and it rocks forward, and it rocks back, and it rocks forward again, and it goes all Oof. the way over the head, just Damn. falls off the. The speaker bottom, mm. it's pulling cords out the wall. <laughs> the sound man's, some of the stuff is breaking, you know. Yeah. He just shuts the whole thing down. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they got four songs out. <laughs> it was one of the best shows I ever saw. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what makes it, you know, the chaos a little bit. You right. Know, that, that, it's spontane- spontaneity that you don't expect, you know. Yeah. yeah. But no, well, that, that was like that first show that we did, like, you know, this tiny little theater <clears throat> off of Sunset Boulevard in the back alley. Right across from Sunset, uh, from Tower Records. And, um, yeah, it was, like I said, Germs opened up, and there's Darby Crash with his peanut butter pulling an Iggy Pop move. And then, right. then we came on, and then the Zippers, and, and then the Weirdos. And then when the Weirdos got an encore, they they handed over their instruments to the Damned. Then the Damned got on, and they did one song. Wow. Huh. And, then, and then the captain uh, proceeded to urinate uh, on everyone on, in the front row. <laughs> How punk. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely uh, baptism by fire. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I was like, wow, okay, uh, I think I can get into this. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of remember the spitting days, too. I mean, you could spit all over your Oh, head. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, that was no fun. <laughs> yeah, the pogo was all right. I didn't mind that. Right? But, but yeah, I was never into the violent part of it. But that came later with the hardcore scene, like at the second wave of punk. Got really it it kind of was. Yeah, that happened <clears throat> to us at the Skeleton Club, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Timothy Leary, that's funny you bring up, because I was going to say, uh, in uh, the mid-'80s, I had a band in San Francisco called Flying Color, and uh, we uh, played a lot, and we put out some records, and... We ended up getting a gig opening up for Timothy Leary. Oh, oh really? At the Stone in 1980. Was he doing some kind of spoken word? Yeah, he was doing some kind of monologue, and I don't know how we got the gig. They just said, hey, you guys want to open up for Timothy Leary? We're like, yes. And so, <laughs> right? Like, there we go. I don't care what he's doing. Eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy's a, I mean, yeah. a cultural icon. He's, I mean, right. come on. And so, yeah, it was probably the most bizarre gig I've ever did in my life. I'll bet. And, and yeah, so, you know, we got up there, we played, and he really liked us, and he complimented us and said really nice nice things about us and the band. And then he just went up, sat on a, on a little wooden stool on the stage, and everybody sat down on the floor like hippies, and he went off with his dialogue. And I think I have photos somewhere. I have to look for them. But, yeah, that was really weird. I mean, I've, I've played in so many bands since the after the Zeros broke up in 80, and all through all those bands, man, I, I ended up in – Really weird gigs. I could go down a list of who's who. <laughs> that's cool. But that's you know that's a whole other story. Anyway, so yeah, so back to the zeros. We 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 started playing in L.A. and we, we were like just really busy and 
um, we put out a second LP, a 45 for Greg Shaw, um, and he actually wanted to make a really slick 45 uh, production, and, and so he hired, uh, I think it was the guy who produced Blondie, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember his name. I think it might have been Craig Leon or somebody like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, so we go to the studio, and then we're following this guy's directions, you know, and it was like, it didn't really sound like us, man, you know. It sounded like the Ronettes with punk rock guitars and we're like that doesn't sound like us you know and so we never put it out but it is on the lp though there's the the that that recording that recording uh, uh-huh the, the lp that came out in 90 if you listen look for it so what do you think about it now is it i i it didn't matter yeah you know i prefer the original one it sure. was beat your heart out that they wanted to oh, okay. like make it all you know frou-frou you know right. hello kitty and <laughs> you know they did that with the, the unknowns because he had those Moserite guitars mm, with lots mm-hmm, of twang, mm-hmm. and so they wanted to really turn up the reverb, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and I, you know, I, I don't know. The producer sometimes steps on things a little too hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we 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 you know we we gave it a shot, and then you know we we had the recordings for a little while, a couple of weeks, listening to them, and yeah, overall as a group, we came to the realization that's not really who we what we sound like. You know? Yeah, so. yeah. So we ended up going back in the studio and knocked it out, you know, boom, uh, two and a half, one, one and a half minute song, whatever, just get it done, bam. That was Beat Your Heart Out and then Wild Weekend on the other side, I believe, of the single. Well, so uh, what, uh, probably the most important punk rock show uh, was um, that first Adams Avenue theater show. Yes, in San Diego, yes. Dill Zeros and the Hitmakers. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there. Uh, it was... Um, I was really excited by the whole thing. Well, I mean, to see, you know, people who mm-hmm. were newly embracing this culture, wanted to be part of it, yeah. were excited by the news about it, you know, and uh, from other cities and England and then mm-hmm. Sex Pistols and New York. And and this was their chance. Yeah. And, and this was the, fir- the first meeting right. of, of all those people. And um, so how did you get on that? Whoever was putting it together contacted us because um, was it Michael Toombs or I don't I, I couldn't tell you Tom Griswold yeah yeah probably Tom yeah probably Tom and well also when you think about it I mean what other punk rock bands were around exactly <laughs> like, the deal from Carlsbad well I mean, I mean that was where I was there's punk rock bands in San Diego yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. and then the hit makers you know. Psh- but yeah, I remember that show clearly. I think Chip broke his guitar neck on that gig, at that gig. Oh wow! His guitar fell over off the amplifier and knocked the headstock off. He was really bummed out, and I think Robert let him borrow the guitar for his gig. And that's the first time I ever saw Ron Silva. And I said, "Oh look, it's all four Beatles rolled into one." <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean he looked cool, man. He's a cool guy, you know. So, but yeah, that was a that was the that was the spearhead of that whole thing you know for san diego it was it was a trip one thing i really remember was um so i, can't, I think it was 76 that uh, patty smith had done a show at civic center mm-hmm. and so this is like you know 18 months later or something mm. it was a, quite a while later and but she was wearing um all the fatigue pants mm-hmm. white t-shirt um uh, black motorcycle jacket, mm-hmm. and uh, so so there was a thing. Everybody's trying to figure out how to how to look. Oh yeah, well, well, and yeah. There, were a, there were a bunch of girls that had the, exactly That's that. A, yeah, that was a kind of a popular style for a little while. That Patty Smith anorexic, uh, yeah, you know POW look. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you know, but everybody's trying to figure out. Well, you know, what do I look like? You know. Yeah, yeah. Now, with with us, we were like with the zeros. We're like, um, we were really into like the that that sixties, um, straight leg tight black jeans. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm still wearing them for crying out loud. Right. <laughs> you know, pointy shoes, a cool t shirt, little tight t shirt. You know. Right. Right. And um, that was it. You know, we just. The first time we played, we looked like the Beach Boys in L.A. because we had fat, white, black and white striped T-shirt and our jeans were slightly flared still, you know. We all were kind of matching in a weird way. That's funny. And then when we saw the way everybody was dressing at that gig, and especially the weirdos who had everything 
you know, safety pin to their clothes. Oh, man. I was like, wow. <laughs> Oof, okay. <laughs> I, Jackie Ramirez went with us, and and uh, I was hanging out with her a little bit. She was taking photos of the whole thing, and I, I went up to Jackie. I said, Jackie, what is going on here? Because, you know, we're, we're like these kids from the suburbs, you know, in San Diego. Like, we've never seen this. I said, it's like, it's like, it's like Halloween in the summer, man. What's that? He goes, yeah, well, you know, it's a fashion. It's this and that and that. And I said, okay, okay, I, I can dig it. You she know? talked about that when we talked to her. Yeah. yeah. She was, yeah, she knew. Yeah, she knew. She yeah. Knew. So, yeah, Jackie was great, man. She was really cool. And she was, she was always around. And, um, you know, she, we go way back. And uh, there was a, a group of, of girls that were part of the whole thing. They were all friends with Rhoda. And they went to Chula Vista High School, too. And they knew Robert. And they knew Javier and stuff. And. It was like Evie and Evie and Kitten and 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 uh, Jackie Rhoda. Unfortunately, Evie passed away. I think uh, 2012. She had a, 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 a aneurysm. Oh wow! And then Kitten died last year. Right, here, right, right. I, I remember that. Heartbreaking because yeah. they were all part of that little group of the early days, you know. Yeah, and, we uh, we partied with yeah. them a bunch. But uh, um, so yeah, that's 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 how we got uh, introduced to punk rock. You know, <laughs> it was like. And that well, was the it. Penetrators get, got onto that second show because the Dills mm-hmm. moved out of town. Oh, right, right. And so that left room for the Penetrators to pop onto the bottom of that bill. Yeah, and then, yeah, we and and then we end up following pretty much the Dills to Ella, uh, San Francisco too. We, right, you were gone pretty <clears throat> pretty soon after that. Yeah, it was September '78 that we ended up in San Francisco. We were um, basically here playing L.A. We did a couple of trips to the West Coast, up the West Coast to San Francisco, uh, Portland. And on that second trip, when we came back, we're like, ooh, we should move to San Francisco. It's cool, and it's fun, and it's different. And it was definitely different than L.A. Uh, you had more opportunity in L.A. at the time to actually get signed. I mean, X got signed, and a few other bands got signed. Right. You know, the Go-Go's, who were like, you know, they, they got signed to a and I don't know, because they were female and cute, and um, they took them a while to become accomplished musicians because I used to live in the Canterbury, which is a famous apartment where all these punks used to live. I, I ran off to L.A. Uh, a springtime of 78, <clears throat> took a break from the band, and I was living there squatting, and uh, Jane Wheatland lived there in one apartment. Really? Uh, Robert Lopez became her roommate, and Robert taught her how to play guitar, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Belinda Carlisle lived on the on the top floor. She was roommates with Lorna Doom, the bass player from the Germs. Right. Uh, Nikki Beat, the drummer for the Weirdos, was uh, in a relationship with Alice Bag, and they lived on another apartment in the building. And so it was anybody who was anybody in the scene was living there privately. I remember that place. It was a trip. Man, yeah, you know? yeah. Well, we but, played uh, with the Go Go's. They yeah. opened. They opened when we did the Mabuhay Gardens. Yeah, it was uh, Go Go's open, mm-hmm. and they could hardly play their instruments. Right, they were just starting, you know. And they were so cute, though. No, they, of course, they went yeah. over just fine, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, and then then it was a band called X Ray Ted, and it was us mm-hmm. Penetrators, and then uh, uh, Dead Kennedys was yeah. the headliner great show yeah you know yeah exactly i mean because i mean but that was punk rock it was like di you know do it yourself diy whatever and diy and then um everybody was pretty much open to uh uh, supporting other acts and other musicians no matter if they were great or not you know as long as you were had the spirit and the drive and the desire to do something boom okay we'll do it you know it was a cohesive scene that was one of the things i kind of liked about it i mean yeah it was Partly is because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people don't like it, this, but there's a lot of us, there's a us that really like it a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure, yeah. And and it was really cool. Um, there was a time in San Francisco, when, once we were living there, I remember there was a concert at the San Francisco Art Institute, and it was like, and it was so great. It was like, there was a rockabilly on, on the bill, a reggae band on the bill, and a punk rock band on the bill. <laughs> and it was like, such, so great. And, you know, because it was like, there was like the... The Rastas walking around, and the Rockabilly guys over here, and the Punkers over here, and everybody getting along, you know, and just the variety of, of the different styles was just so cool. And I always thought, this is how it should be, you know? Right. And then later on, you know, it's like, oh, we're just going to do punks with punks and Rasta with Rastas and Rockabilly with Rockabilly. It's like, but why are you segregating it? Keep it mixed up. Exactly. And that's what makes it fun, you know? Well, that's, well, that's what I like about college radio, eclectic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eclectic, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, that's that's how it goes. But yeah, we went to San Francisco shortly after the Dills did, and we ended up becoming 
um, involved with Peter Urban, who was managing the deals and also ended up managing us. So we were always like, you know, pretty much uh, connected since way back when. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I got to know Tony pretty good, Tony Kinman, and he passed away last year in May, too. I remember. Yeah, and then um, there was uh, John Silver was a drummer and Chip, and they were a really cool-looking band. You know, they were all really tall, all three of them. They all looked like, you know, movie stars, you know, that didn't eat properly, but they looked like <laughs> movie stars. But they were cool, you know. They were skinny, tall, and they, they were they were Right, really, right. Really nice. they Definitely fit, had the look. Yeah, they, they fit well together, you know. Yeah. And, um, and they were great people, you know. And um, it was really great to see uh, see Chip uh, uh-huh. at uh, you know recently. Oh, at the Casbah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his his uh, his son uh, Giuliano on drums. He's a monster musician. That kid. Oh, it's a great show. Yeah, yeah. That, that... I was almost surprised actually. You know? <laughs> I because I uh, kind of. Well, the way Gary tells it, he was kind of did it as a favor to Gary. I mean, he's on Gary's. Yeah, he was for on sure. Gary, yeah, on yeah, Gary's. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Swan song. Yeah. Yeah. No. Send yeah. off. Chip's Chip's awesome, man. He, I love that guy. He's like, you know, we're like family, man. You know, we know each other for a long time. Yeah, I never really met him because they were gone before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I uh, you know before I was in you know. In yeah. Yeah. We the yeah we did a lot of gigs together, zeros and deals up in San Francisco and. You know, we were always hanging out at the same shows, you know, or if, like, the Avengers were playing somewhere, everybody ended up at the same show anyway, ha- hanging out, you yeah. know, and yeah, 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 talking, yeah. socializing, whatever. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 been a really strange journey, you know, in so many ways. It's like you never – nobody ever thought that punk rock was going to, like, continue to uh, harvest and – grow and whatever it was supposed to implode it's supposed to self-destruct at some point but now everybody's you know into those bands younger people you know it's because of the internet everything's all over the place and it keeps the interest up you know it's pretty wild to think of that the nuns yeah the nuns you know yeah the nuns they're the they're the band that got us to san francisco really because alejandro was in the band and alejandro right. was part of the nuns and he said hey remember if the zeros want to play San Francisco, um, I'll get you guys a show with the nuns. So we went up there, and we stayed at Alejandro's flat. <laughs> and like a good dad, he's told us, I'm going to tell you guys, look out for the, the girls with the big Adam's apple and the large hands <laughs> and the big feet. Because <laughs> they're not girls. He says, you guys not are, exactly. Yeah, you guys are prime, <laughs> prime meat right now. Oh, man, that was the funniest thing ever. I'll never forget that. We're, oh, all, yeah, right? we're all like on Cute little on the, Mexican boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all lying on the floor in our sleeping bags, getting ready to go to bed. He's giving us the, the, the 411 on that. Oh, man, it was so funny. I'll well, that was, that was my first uh, punk rock show in, in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. It was Crime and, and Nuns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they were the spearhead of that whole thing. Exactly. You know, Crime and Nuns were the first bands to do yeah. all that at the Mabuhe. And then... Then came, you know, Avengers and the Dills right. moving there and the, the Kennedys and Well, I and, love that that uh that that San Francisco scene though. I mean Flipper and Oh and, yeah, and, oh, so uh, many great Tuxedo bands. Moon and I mean yeah. it was a lot of variety. Yeah, there. it was a lot of variety, yeah. It really it really Sleepers was. and Yeah. Yeah, they're great bands too, all of them really good and And the residents, which was kinda not <laughs> not part of that but no, they were. But they were. But yeah, yeah but you know, those guys I mean, those guys are like, they're like spackle, you know? It's like they'll... Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? They'll, they'll work no matter what. They'll work. Yeah, yeah. I, I can always... Oh, my God. <laughs> the first time I saw their pictures with the eyeball, and the, I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Come on in. Whatever. I don't know. They're great. They're really awesome. I mean, I Snakefinger was part of that whole thing, you know? You know, I met him, and I didn't even know it. mm um, I, I was at a party up in San Anselmo, mm-hmm. across the bay, and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm talking to this guy named Philip, and uh, and you know, and I was I was up there visiting a friend of mine, and and later on she said, yeah, I think uh, oh that's let me introduce you to Philip. So I talked to him for a bit. He was a very cool guy, mm-hmm. but you know, we, <clears throat> I, I wasn't I wasn't in a band at the time, and mm-hmm. so. And then later on, uh, I'm talking to my friend. And I said, "Oh, I think he's, I think he's in a band called Snakefinger." Uh-huh. 
And I'm going, that snake finger? Whoa, (laughs) why didn't you tell me? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 I used to see him around in the city all the time, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, the San Francisco scene was so different from L.A., I mean. Yeah, well, and even the hippie days, it was different, too. Yeah, for sure. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those years that, that, that we were there as a band were only, like, Three years it was like uh-huh. we moved there September '78. By August '80, we'd broken up. Javier was like, "I'm moving out of town. I, I got to go to Austin. I want to go to Austin." He was kind of trying to change his lifestyle, I guess you could say. But um, it, during those times, I mean, you know, we ended up opening up for the Clash sure. at the Temple Beautiful, heady stuff. And that was like really like uh, pretty surreal, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But pretty awesome, you know, and. Um, it went by just too fast. It should have been a longer gig, but whatever. Well, I mean, they always go by. It, it, it can't last very. No, long. of course not. Yeah, you know, I mean, a couple yeah. of years—that's all you get. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then the energy changes. I mean, totally. we 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 stuck it out for five years, but the first two were the you know the really pumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years. The, the, and then the yeah, last yeah. three, we're playing teen gigs and mm-hmm. we're playing Journey and Stratus and. Uh-huh. And but yeah, it just wasn't it wasn't the same as playing the Skeleton Club. Oh sure, yeah, 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 yeah. It changes. Lions you know? Club. Yeah, yeah. No, in San Francisco, it was it was a really healthy, really strong punk rock scene, you know. And um, we were always going to the shows, always hanging out, you know, uh, dining and dash, whatever, trying <laughs> to get quarters out of the <laughs> vending machines by shifting the spare change thing, and you know, there was there were ways to get money. <laughs> So how long did the was a uh, how long did it, did it take for the zeros to get back together and play again? Ten years. Ten. Yeah. What it was happened? nineteen for us. Yeah, yeah. We 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 stopped in August of eighty. Javier moved to Austin. Then Baba followed him, moved to Austin, and then ten years went by. I was living in L.A. in ninety. I got a call from Javier Escovedo. Hey. Bump Records wants to re-re- wants to release all the demos and re-release the singles in an album format. Uh, are you cool with that? I said, yeah, you know. So he says, we, we might have to, you know, get support back together it. and support the release and do a little yeah. short West Coast tour. So that's how we got back together for that. And that's always been sort of how the band would get together, just for these little spurts of, uh-huh. you know, activities and... Never say, okay, we're a band now. We're going to stick it out till we hate each other again. You know, but, whatever, you know? <laughs> but uh, so we'd go, you know, and we got together. And then we, I think we came down and played down here at the old Casbah. Uh, I know we played in LA. We played, I think, at the Lingerie. And then we went up to San Francisco and played the Kennel Club. And then that was it, pretty much. And then we just kind of, oh, and we played the, and, and then we were done. And then shortly after that, Robert Lopez calls up and says, hey, I'm doing this benefit at the Palace, uh, along with the Go-Go's and a few other bands from L.A. I think X was playing, too, uh, to raise funds to pay for the medical bills for Craig Lee, who used to be the guitar player in the bags. But Craig had passed away from AIDS, and um, there were some financial, you know, some funds that needed to be uh, raised to pay the bills and what have you. And so Robert said, look, I'm going to play here as Alves, but... Uh, I got asked if the Zeros want to do it too. So we're like, okay, let's do it. So yeah. so we go down there, we did the gig, and on the way out, leaving, uh, Bill Bartel, who owns Gasatanka Records, said to us in the Capitol Records parking lot of all places, we were right across the street from the palace, you guys want to put out a record? I, I, you guys were one of my favorite punk bands from, from the L.A. 70s scene. I have a little label called Gasatanka. So we took his business card, and then, uh, um, you know, we didn't think much about it right at the moment, but we thought, okay, well, let's see what this guy's made out of, you know. And then Robert says, hey, this other record label wants to put out a zero single called uh, Sympathy for the Record Industry. Uh-huh, says, right. so, so we got two offers pretty much in the same day <laughs> to put out two singles. So then, then we're like, okay, now this is getting to a whole other level now because now it's two offers. So we started making plans and what we ended up doing is we came down here to San Diego and uh, recorded at Richard Blitz studio. And what we did is we knocked out the both singles on one session. We did two songs for the one label and two songs for the other label. 
And we said, okay, here's yours and here's yours. Boom. And they actually came out pretty much at the same time, you know, somewhat simultaneously. Cool. And uh, then then my intention with one of those singles, the Gasatanka one, was like I wanted to sound uh, as best as possible so that the Gasatanka guy decides he wants to make an album, you know, like plant the seed and then watch it grow, right? So then um, that's exactly what happened. He said, okay, I want to make an album with you guys. And so we started working on that. So we went up to L.A. and we, we recorded um, at the Sandlot Studios. And then uh, we had guests come in. I think the McDonald brothers from Red Cross came in and did some backgrounds on some songs. I know Chip and Tony came in and did some some stuff. So it was just kept keeping it kind of fun, you know, and, and, and like uh, have, have these other friends of ours be part of it. And so the record came out. That was 92, 93, going on 93, 94. And then um, Bill Bartel puts out the uh, the CD, and then he says, "Hey, I'm licensing the masters to a label in Madrid, Spain, wow. uh, Munster Records. So you may end up going to Europe to tour." And sure enough, uh, by the beginning of 1995, he's all like, "All right, you guys better get ready because we're going to do a spring tour of Spain because the record's coming out in uh, Spain." And that's how we ended up in Spain. So wow. then. We flew out there and we played, uh, I think, two weeks pretty much every day. And then we flew from Spain to Sweden because there was a band in Sweden called Sator. And uh, they were big into the California punk scene back you know, in the day. So they actually made a, a, re a recording of all these punk band, um, the covers, you know, like the Dills and the Nuns and the Zeros, the Avengers, uh, I think the Deadbeats, uh, Crime. Uh -huh. You know, they, it's like a 15... Uh, track CD, you know, 15 cuts of all these California bands. And the CD's called Barbecue Killers. Or whatever <laughs> like so really, really, and those guys sound really good. I mean, Sator? Yeah, Sator, S-A-T-O-R. Yeah, and, um, heard of it. So they were big fans of the Zeros because of the punk scene thing. So they invited us to fly out. And they were friends with Bill Bartel, who was the Gasatanka guy who mastered, you know, who licensed the recordings to Madrid record label. So we ended up going to Sweden for a whole week. And uh, these guys were rock stars in Sweden. I mean, they had an 18-wheeler, you know, a rig. Wow. Yeah, with all full of lighting uh, equipment, uh, sound system. They got they had road crews. They had their own tour bus. <laughs> and we were, like, you know, playing through their stuff to three to 4,000 people every gig. It was wow. insane. I mean, nobody ever heard of the Zeros in Sweden, but okay. Right. Here we go. <laughs> I don't, you know, Sure. You know, just another thing that just fell on our lap. Boom. Well, thank you to Bill. You know, I, I, we as the Zeros owe Bill Bartel our left nut and our right nut because <laughs> he did a lot of things for us that uh, a lot of people um, would be blown away just by, you know, knowing how far he got us. Right. Well, he, you you he, guys were bringing it, though. Yeah, yeah. But Bill really was... Uh, a beautiful, beautiful guy. Definitely us. helps having somebody greasing the skids. That's that's for sure. Yeah, and he passed away too. You know, he passed away, and it was we were really bummed out. I was bummed out by that because yeah. he, he used to be a policeman, but he never told anybody. He always <laughs> kept it a secret. Yeah, he used to be a policeman in somewhere out in Pomona, San Bernardino area, somewhere out in the east side of L.A. Yeah, huh. and we always asked him, what, well, "What do you do? You know, for a living?" He wouldn't tell us until after he passed away. There's a memorial. We found out. And that was a surprise. Yeah, right? <laughs> he was a cop. Okay, great. Anyways. But he was a he was in White Flag, as a matter of fact, and he was a big music aficionado. He knew everybody. He knew Sean Lennon. He knew Yoko Ono. He, you name it, he knew them. So isn't music the great equalizer? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, so the Zeros are playing again. Well, yes and no. I don't, you know, it's hard to say what's going on. I mean, the last time we did anything as a as a cohesive unit, meaning original lineup, yeah, was January 2014 when the original four right flew to Tokyo, Japan, you know, and we and we played. And after that, how was that? Amazing. Are you kidding me? Right, J punk rock in Japan, of course. We uh, it was totally unexpected. I was. Uh, a big, big goal of mine to go to, to Asia. Sure. Uh, and, and I never expected it to be to play, but of course that would be great, you know? Right. And they, that's exactly what happened. We got approached by a guy, um, 
who owns a record label, a uh, record store called Vinyl Japan, and uh, he also does concerts and promotes and stuff. The music scene over there, Tokyo, and he sent us an email. Said, said, hey, you know, I want to get the zeros out to Tokyo f- to do two gigs. I thought, you know, I'll, 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 you, you guys will be here for seven days. You do two gigs, all expenses paid, and we're like, just for two gigs, okay. <laughs> and, but we get to have, you know, vacation time. So that's what we did. We flew out there. It was a lot of work, though. We, we, we needed work permits, and he was sending us all the paperwork through FedEx, and we were filling it all out, sending it back to him. And then we got the work permits, had to take pictures, had to go to the Japanese consulate in downtown L.A., get our visas, you know, just all this stuff to make it happen because you can't just get on a plane and go. I mean, you got to be ready, you know, yeah. have all the legalities in order. And then we got there, and um, we ended up – it was the first time we all ever had – our own individual hotel rooms. Usually it was like two to a room, you know, Robert and I, Bob and Javi over here, Robert and I over here. So we got there and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, you you, you get this room. So Robert and I are getting ready to go to the room and then the lady goes, oh no, and you get this other room. <laughs> and Bob, Robert and I looking like, what? Unheard of. It was, it was right? so funny. All the days that we were in the same room with the roadies too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there were times when we slept in the van, you know, right? <laughs> in in Truckee, in Nevada, in the oh, wow. you know, really bad, bad cold weather. It was like ah, because things would happen. The van would break down, you know. And I know. Tr- I, I I worked construction in Truckee when I was in high school, oh, <laughs> so I know. <laughs> no, there's this one time when the zeros we were playing, we were living in San Francisco, and we ended up going up to Reno to play with yeah. Seven Seconds and. Um, Peter Urban uh, rented a U-Haul. It was a it was a ten footer with a box in the back, and that's how we're gonna get there. Just one bench seat in the front, <laughs> and a box in the back <laughs> with the double doors. So Bob and I get to sit in the box with the equipment, and Ro- and then Peter and Javier and Rhoda are in the front. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. <laughs> so we're driving up to. Reno from San Francisco in this thing. Everything was fine on the way up. It was daytime. It was warm. And then we played, and we finished about 2 in the morning. And then uh, Javier has always had this thing where he just wants to leave right away, you know? And we're like, yeah, but it was 3 in the morning, and there was snow all through the, you know, oh, right. highway getting to Reno, you know? And it's going to be extra cold at 3 in the morning. <laughs> oh, no, we just got to get back. I think it was just a control issue, whatever. But anyway, so, okay, so there we are, driving back in this thing at 3 in the morning, you know, uh, high altitude, you know, through the mountains, whatever, and the thing breaks down. Oh, yeah. The U-Haul breaks down, man. There's no heater in the box, you know? And Rhoda, you know, she she's diabetic. She's been diabetic all her life, and she had to, we had to make sure she was okay with the insulin and everything. And right. And so uh, there we are, stranded on the side of the road. There's all this snow everywhere. And we started to freeze our derrieres off, right. man, you know? So, like, we had the, 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 the U-Haul inside of it in the box. It had uh, those package, packaging, packing blankets. They're, like, as thin as a sheet of paper. They don't really insulate anything. But we started wrapping them around our legs, Baba and I, and then we, we got the guitar cords, cables, and then we started wrapping them around to keep those things from falling off our legs. And it was really cold, man. It was super cold. And then um, there was no cars coming by, nothing. You know, it was the middle of nowhere, you know, like just pine trees and a ravine down there, you know. And freezing cold. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> and finally this car comes by and, 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 and it stopped and it was this really old couple and they're really nice. And so they took Rhoda and they said, well, we're going to drop, you know, we'll drop her off at the nearest restaurant or whatever that's open all night. And so they took her. And um, she was taken somewhere safe. And then they called Caltrans, and then Caltrans came. And then by the time we ended up at the restaurant where we met up with Rhoda, it was already daylight, you know. We'd been out there for hours, man. But that's compared to that, and you go and have a really nice hotel all for yourself, a hotel room in Tokyo, you realize that all that crazy stuff that happened is just, you know, the nice hotel rooms to pay off in a way, you know. Yeah, in a way, and it did. Yeah, it kind of worked that way for us too. I mean, it, yeah. you know, we were, you know, one guy would get the two-person hotel room, and then the rest of us 
all stay in there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then later on, we're we're staying at the Boulder Auto in Boulder, Colorado. Uh-huh. You know, and he, everybody's got their own room. And, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was nice. But yeah. you know, we 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 we've done it all. We've the the the, the common thing to do back in those early days was like you ask somebody yeah we need somewhere to stay you know and then everybody already knew that you know Harvey's asking somebody over here and Bob's asking somebody over there and I'm asking somebody over here and before you know between the three of us boom something falls and then we have somewhere to stay (laughs) that's how we used to do back in the day well Hector yes thank you for coming and talking oh for sure yeah Uh, fun swapping stories with you yeah yeah for sure absolutely Uh, All right. well um, I'll let you know what's going on with uh, this this stuff. Uh, it'll be up on the podcast really soon. I don't know. I think there's going to be some. Uh, we're gonna, we don't. We don't. We don't know what we're going to do with the video. Okay. Okay. We don't know what's <laughs> going to happen with that, but something. All right. So thank you again. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really fun as right. always. <laughs> Grab my stuff over here. <laughs> <laughs>